Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Today, we are honored. Um, by the way, I'm trying out a new microphone, so I got to lean close. Dustin's is in transit. Uh, today's guest was uh, in Apache Troop, uh, Sergeant Radio Telephone Operator uh, with Apache Troop out of Tainan, 1969 to 1970. Uh, came home, had a very long, distinguished career in the furniture industry business. Uh, he eventually retired and liked his retirement ceremony so much, he went back to work so he could retire again. Uh, we're talking today with Sergeant James. A lot of people want to call him Ron, but it's James Brown. Got that doc. You seem to be the one who, who keeps saying Brown the most. <laughs> uh, but thanks for joining us today, Jim. Yes, sir. My pleasure. All right. And uh, I, uh, you showed me your hat earlier. Well, for the people watching on YouTube and Facebook, what hat you rocking in honor of? Honoring. Uh, can you see that? Uh, raise it up. There we go. World War II veteran, and that's a specific honor for someone in your life, right? That is for my dad, Kathy's dad, who you gentlemen had the pleasure of meeting. We did. Uh, my, uncle, my uncle Ralph, who fought all across Europe. He was in Patton's bunch. And every World War II vet, because those guys are my ultimate heroes. They're all heroes, although none of you we've talked to will ever accept the hero nickname even though you have claimed giving the hero nickname to Craig Jorgensen after all these years. <laughs> I believe that is correct. Yes, I did. All right. And on the subject of hats, I will pick mine. My desk is a total mess because I've been finally going through my dad's uh, affairs and I have pictures everywhere for that. Uh, but in honor of that, I'm going to choose this hat actually from friend of the movie, Darren Wanless. So this is my dad's company logo. Uh, we he got it when we played softball with Customs and Border Protection. Uh, we were terrible because we could never field a full team because everyone was always on shift work. But uh, you knew you played us by the end because especially in tournaments, we got kind of drunk and actually played better. Um, but I've worn this hat on many a film set since then. So let's wear it today. How are you, Dustin? I'm great. I'm having uh, one of those uh, mosquito-filled child screaming in the background, good days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, they're, only, they're only good if you really like being a parent, and I really like being a dad, so even, even in the weirdest moments, it's such a riot. So as I have to step back and laugh at my children, I'll be all right. I have to say distance learning with two 13-year-olds has been a treat. Let's put it that way. It's yeah, been a treat. That's Be right. happy, Jim, that your kids are, are grown and on their own. Yes, grandchildren are the best. Yeah. And you have, uh, but you are not free. You're just telling us you have a brand new puppy to go with your dog already. We do. 
<laughs> how, how old's your new dog? Uh, Levi just turned three, and Patrick is about three months. Oh, nice. That's a nice age range. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but they, they get along well. Levi's oh, very good. tolerant. He's a good-natured boy, so they're, uh, they're good playmates for each other most of the time. All right, and Dustin, special for you. I am going to step back and let you start this week. Oh, thanks, Dave. <laughs> Jim, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the everybody's favorite. How did you end up in Vietnam? Okay, um, I uh, when I got out of high school, I attended college for two years, Southeast Missouri State, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. After two years. I kind of dropped out to earn some additional money because uh, I felt bad about my parents footing the bill. So I wanted to drop out for six months, make some more money and go back. However, when I dropped out, I lost my student deferment. Mm. And within six months, I got the letter in the mail. And I believe mine said greeting, not greetings, uh, that, that I was drafted. Um, Got it the day I got it. My mother was distraught, of course. I remember my dad, he was sitting in a chair in the family room, and I walked in and said, Dad, guess what happened today? He goes, What? I said, I got drafted. And he looked up and he kind of thought for a minute and he said, Well, okay, maybe you'll have a little more sense when you get out. <laughs> that was his initial, uh, not in a mean way, because those six months when I had. It, dropped out of school and was working, I was, I was pretty much just drifting and partying, you know, like everybody else, probably woefully ignorant of what was really happening in, in Southeast Asia at the time as well. So got drafted, got inducted uh, eight weeks at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, basic training, 10 weeks at Fort Ord, California for uh, advanced infantry training, got a 16-day leave which I thought should have been 30. So I actually wound up taking a 30-day leave. Uh, reported to Fort Lewis, Washington, 14 days late. Uh, got in a little trouble for that. Uh, received a, there's three types of court martials. I got a, the lowest grade court martial, a summary court martial. And for my punishment, I was fined a month's salary which was 99 bucks and I was reduced in grade from E2 to E1. So I was almost the lowest you could be anyway, getting out of training. So I got reduced down one more and I thought, man, if I would have known this, I would have taken another couple of weeks. <laughs> what are they going to do? Send you to Vietnam? <laughs> that was, a, that was our mantra throughout, throughout training. And interestingly enough, there were so many guys reported late that I hung around Fort Lewis, for, I think, for about 10 days waiting for my court-martial. Wow. And I just spent the time dodging details and stuff. But that was all what we call a good time. That counted against my two years. So I was pretty cool just going around Fort Lewis. Finally, I got, got my, uh, my day in court, got my sentence, and was sent on. Uh, I left the States on July 4th, 1969. And I remember sitting on the plane, and I, Dave, I know we'll keep this clean. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a real effing Independence Day. You know, I'm going to Vietnam today. 
uh, flew into uh, Cameron Bay, wound up in Benoit. And once again, the army lost track of me for like about two weeks. So I was just uh, running around, dodging details, doing this, doing that in, in Benoit. And I didn't feel the need to tell anybody, hey, shouldn't I be out in the jungle somewhere? So I just kind of hung out. Eventually they found me again. Uh, and like Dwayne, I got on a chopper, uh, ended up in Tainin base camp uh, with the Apache Blues, which I thought was an omen because you guys probably know I'm a huge St. Louis Blues hockey fan. And when I got there and said, you're going to be in the blues, I thought, well, this probably isn't going to be so bad. And then later I may have revised my opinion of that. <laughs> uh, but that was it. And there I was in the blues. So for the two weeks that they lost you after you arrived in country, were you pulling, like we would joke around at customs, like if you want to look busy, just grab a clipboard and walk around like you have a purpose. But, is that what you would do? Like just uh, pretty like much. I I didn't do a lot of hard laboring of any type of that. I recall I just uh, tried to stay uh, in the background and uh, away from the NCOs and and all that. So yeah, it was it was pretty cool, all things considered. And again, that that was more that was more good time off my two years. So and probably better food there than when you got to Tainan. Uh, probably was, yeah. And they had a nice big service club there, I remember, where we, they had uh, pretty good live music sometimes and, and, and that. So it, all in all, it was, it was a pretty nice, pretty nice experience. What, uh, what, what called you to the radio work? I was thinking about that uh, earlier today. I think, uh, it, originally, I, I carried it for our, my squad. I was in 4-1. Um, I think maybe the guy who had been carrying it might have been leaving. Uh, and it might have been also because I was probably one of the bigger, biggest guys in the, in the platoon. Can you so they said, yeah, give it to him. And also, they found out somehow that I was an English major and I had a reasonable grasp of uh, English language. So they said, okay. You take the radio, and um, I guess that was that was that was it. Can you talk a little bit about the radio telephone, like how big it was and what what it actually how it worked? Well, it weighed I think it was uh, Dustin about twenty five pounds. Okay. It was called a PRC Prick twenty five, and I think it weighed about twenty five additional pounds. Always carried an extra battery pack on on the bottom of it. Uh, it was good for everybody else to hang their crap on. You know, we hang a lot of smoke grenades on the back of it. Uh, carried an extra long antenna, uh, which we called a whip, that if we were in uh, terrain where there was a lot of hills and we needed a longer antenna, uh, hooked that up every once in a while. And it was pretty basic. It had a, a handset, and when you wanted to talk, you pressed a button and talked into it. Other than that, uh, I would be listening. I kind of hung it up on my on my helmet, so I wanted to have two hands free all the time when we were out in the field. So I, I hung it on my helmet, 
and I was always monitoring uh, transmissions from the the pink team, the Cobra and the Loach that were that were flying above us. And then if I had to talk, I just reach up like so, click the button, and then say what I had to say, and then go back to listening. And I guess that's about it. It was. They always said that uh, the RTO was one of the first ones that uh, the Dave, the enemy, uh, would like to take out. So I tried to keep the aerial tucked down as low as I could most of the time. Well, that's and what I was going to ask, actually. Uh, there's an article that I see all the time on Facebook that a radio telephone operator had like a 12-second life expectancy when battles started. And I was like, wait, like you'd need to have like 42 radio telephone operators every time you went out like that math doesn't yeah. make sense that that might have been a bit of a stretch uh wherever, wherever you saw that but i guess a lot of those art radio telephone operators rtos they weren't out there with the kind of guys that i was out there with so um maybe that had something to do with it i do know that it really did get to be a pain in the butt a lot of times especially going through the triple canopy jungle and dragging that thing through all of that. But I, I felt like I was in the right place because I felt like I was pretty effective doing what I was doing and keeping everybody informed and coordinated. So it was okay with me. Well, actually, so you're the radio telephone operator, but you're pretty much attached at the hip to the, the blue lieutenant to blue, would that be a, an accurate statement? Uh, yes, that would be correct, yes. All right, so when things hit the fan, like March 19th, March 25th, and it comes to coordinating fires, are you kind of participating in that or is that all blue handling that? Like how much would you handle the RTO compared to blue? Uh, most, most of the coordinating would have been done. Yeah, I, I was involved in that, but in, in a pretty limited uh, degree. Sometimes I did. Uh, a lot of the times, the Cobra pilot would be uh, in charge of that because they had more than one radio in their chopper and they were had being on more than one frequency. So like John Peel, uh, he could talk to me and he could talk to the nearest firebase with the artillery uh equipment at the same time so the the hybrid the cobra did a lot of that uh but there were definitely were times when uh, when blue did it you know I, I would make sure uh the smoke grenades were deployed in the appropriate place so they came after the other guys not us uh always identified it by color because one thing uh, I heard about a guy one time who was talking to the hybrid said, okay, I got a red smoke out there. And all of a sudden, like three more red smokes appeared uh, <laughs> from them monitoring our transmission. So all he ever said was smoke is deployed ID and then they would ID the color and, and we would confirm it. So, uh, but, but the, uh, to answer your question, Blue definitely was involved sometimes in coordinating as well especially in close fire. Was it, was it hard to throw with the extra 25 pounds in your back? Was it hard to what, Dustin? Was it hard to throw? Were throwing uh, <laughs> well, no, because when the time came to do that, 
he had plenty of adrenaline. But the strength was always there. Yes, yes, it was. And actually, talking about bringing in the fire, I know we've talked about this when we visited with you before the audience. And again, this is for people listening. I am not being flipped. This is actually a serious question. You know, you've you've been ambushed. You're in a firefight. You know, on your radio, with the push of a button, you can. Uh, I believe your term was expend some taxpayer expenses and uh, ordinance coming in. As a 20 oh, yes. or 22 years old, was that? You know, in a little respect, kind of cool. Uh, it, it probably was, yeah. We, we were never hesitant at all to pull back when we could and spend a whole bunch of the taxpayers' money, uh, be it rockets, artillery, more, whatever the case might be, yes. Yeah, it, it, was kind of a, it was kind of a good feeling, I guess, because most of the guys, when something was, was, had happened, they had no idea what was really going on talking to the, to the, to the pilot upstairs. So that was good. And I got to the point, Dave, where I, I almost knew what to do before it happened. Like uh, on March 25th, as soon as we heard, heard the, uh, the firing, before we knew Craig was hit or anything happened, I got on, I got on the horn and bounced a medevac right away. I said, I don't know if we're going to need you, but get out here. So, and, and luckily they got here pretty quick. So it almost got to the point where I could anticipate what was going to happen and, and act accordingly. And actually on March 25th, you know, you're, you're a third person talking to um, Doc and Dwayne were specifically mentioned by Thrill Killed that day, but you were there as well as an introduction for our audience. One of the questions I, I forgot to ask those two, which I think is really good for context for people who watch it, because that's like a two and a half minute clip and it's very condensed. And I don't think people get the true sense of what that day was. How, how long for people listening between those first shots when Craig got shot and him being medevaced out, what, by your recollection, what is that time frame? Maybe I would think Craig might disagree. Of course, he was he was more fiend up at that point than Doc, but I think it was no more than ten to fifteen minutes uh, when when we got him out of there. You know, Dennis Henderson brought him back, despite what the video said. It was Dennis Henderson, rest in peace, and uh, we got him back to the CP. And um, I, I don't think it was more than 10 to 15 minutes, David, that we got him out of there. Yes, Craig and, would disagree. His morphine mind thinks it was forever. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it was. It may have been a little more, but, but I don't think so. Because the medevac, as I said, the medevac was already on the way. I bounced that immediately. So I, I don't think it was a, a great deal of time. It was time enough, if I could uh, throw in a little side thing there, it was time enough for Threlkel to keep trying to stick his mic in Craig's face saying, well, how does it feel to get shot? And I was right there. I see my hand in there a couple of times, patting Craig on the head and, and such. And it took a great deal of, of my willpower to, honestly, I'm telling you, to take that microphone and put it elsewhere. Uh, I wanted to do that so bad, but anyway, we got, we got him out of there and then, um, 
And I think Dwayne told the rest of the story. We made our way back and uh, got the heck out of there. Yep. And, and for people asking, you know, everyone who was in that video did make it out of Vietnam. You know, Dennis Anderson has, has since passed, but he, he also made it home. Um, his daughter actually gave us a lot of his pictures. Thank you, Christy. Oh, I didn't know that. That's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he took some great um, ones. Yeah. Like you're saying, though, you did get a sense. Like, it became second nature to bounce that medevac when, when the bullets started flying. As we've asked uh, everyone else on before, can you remember that first day when you were in combat? Like, what, what was it like for you the first time enemy fire came your way? The, the first time, um, it was all so very new and so very strange that I didn't know quite what the heck to do. Uh, and somebody more experienced, you know, said, get your butt down. And uh, I don't, I really don't remember the, the specifics of the, of the fight, Dave. The, the thing, the, the, the first memory I really have of something bad happening was we had been out on an all night ambush and I had only been with the blues, maybe, I don't know, maybe a month or so an all night ambush. We, you know, we painted ourselves up, went out there nothing happened. We got back the first light, they pulled us out and we had just dumped our gear and, and the horn went off for a scramble and we went right back out and went through a lot of really thick jungle for a downed bird. It was not one of ours, but it was a Huey and it must have crashed, uh, maybe mechanical failure or shot down when it was moving really fast because it, it exploded. And we found uh, 10 bodies that morning and not one of them was recognizable, you know, uh, as a human being. And we were there all day trying to dig them out, get them in, uh, you know, the bags and get them back to an LZ. And, uh, you know, we've been up all night on the ambush and it, it was an all day. And by last light, we were still trying to get through the jungle to get them out. Some of them, we just couldn't. It was too exhausting. And a couple of the little birds came down in a little bomb crater and, and uh, we put some of them, some of the bodies in there. And they finally got us out at, at last light. We got back in, in the LZ. And right as we were lifting off, it was, it was raining a little. It was uh, almost dark. And the tree line, somebody, some, some of them in the tree line opened up on us. And normally, the door gunners were the only ones that would fire. We would not discharge our weapons. Once we're in the chopper, everybody was shooting into the tree line. And we got out of there and got back, went over to the EM club uh, bartender, said, we out there today? I said, yeah. He goes, here's, have a free beer, and just reflected. And that was the, the first time, I think, that I really, really realized what the hell I was into over there and what we were all into over there. So that was, that was my first real uh, graphic impression of, of what the place was like. That, yeah, that would do it. 
Um, and, and it is important to point out, like we, we have in, in our interviews with you guys, you know, it's not like Hollywood makes it out to be on a, on a crash. Um, it's, it's very vivid what you guys remember for that. Um, and it's, it's not a happy place. Yeah. In the, uh, as some of the guys I mentioned before, I think Engelbrecht and, or some of, some of the guys, the aroma, the smell, it, uh, it never leaves. It never leaves you. You know, that was, I think that sense was, was working more than any other of my senses that day. So anyway, that was welcome to Vietnam. Yeah. Jim, besides, besides the, um, besides the pilots that you were sharing space with in Tainan, did you ever get a chance to meet any of the other guys on the other end of the radio? Most of the pilots, um, no, no, not really, not at the time, because we lived, uh, our hooches were in one section of the base camp. Uh, the officers and the warrant officers, which the pilots, a lot of them were warrant officers, right. and some were, were, were regular officers. They lived on the other side of the, of the, of the base camp. So not really, not until re the reunions that I really start to get to know uh, any of the pilots. I knew their voices and I knew their call signs just from hearing them so often, but we never associated uh, back in the base camp, no. Unless you pulled one of them out of the jungle and they, they kind of liked you guys a bit more? Yes, it was a mutual admiration society, I think, because we loved them and uh, they loved us. We just didn't didn't hang out together. But it, it, it didn't matter, I guess, because when, when the shit hit the fan, everybody was all in all the time. I mean, everybody. So great, great bunch of guys. Yeah, and, I, you know, like we said, we're, this isn't so much about, um, in terms of this podcast, it's, it's more about coming home. Um, I'm actually, Dustin, I'm going to let you go. I'm trying to formulate something here. Um, All right. Uh, Jim, what was, your, what was your coming home experience like, uh, both in leaving the troop and then also uh, reuniting with your family stateside? Yeah, leave, leaving the troop uh, was such a rush because a lot of the guys that I had been there with already gone I stayed over an extra 50 days so I could get out of the army when I got home they had a program at that point because they were starting to try to wind down a little that if you got back in the states with less than 150 days active duty then you got what they called an early out and they would let you extend so as I mentioned I left uh, Fort Lewis on July 4th 69 which means I would have come home on July 3rd of 70. But I extended my time over there so I would come home with exactly 149 days left so I could just get out of the Army. A lot of the guys did their year and went home and did six months of stateside duty, which I didn't think I would be able to do at that point, you know, saluting second lieutenants, no offense, Jack. Uh, polishing my boots, polishing my brass. I, I didn't foresee that in my future. So by, by that time, I was working in the flight operations center, working the radios. I had a pretty secure job. 
So I got out when I got home. So I knew when I got when I left Vietnam, not only was I going home, I was getting out of the army. So it was like a double hit. Excuse me, just a minute here. So getting home, going through the reception center, was like, okay, here you are. Um, you look like you're pretty healthy. Check this, check this, check this, and, and they turn you loose. But I came home through Oakland, and I flew home through uh, the San Francisco airport, which, of course, at the time uh, was the epicenter of, of all the protests. So I saw a lot of that. Uh, you know, I thought maybe I was the enemy when I was I wore my uniform, my dress greens when I flew home because you got a third off on your flight. You know, so I wore my dress greens, uh, didn't have a real good experience at the airport. But if you got time for a short story about the redoubtable Sergeant Robert Peyton Burroughs. Oh, um, I always we, got time for a Burroughs story. We, we happened to wind up, he was going home on leave because he was going back. And we wound up as fate would have it in the airport at the same time, waiting for our flights. So we were sitting in the bar having a beer. I got up to use the restroom, came back, and on either side of Burroughs were these two, uh, what you would call hippies, protesters, whatever they may be. They were looking him up and down. He was ignoring them. I came back in the bar, saw this scene. I stopped and thinking to myself, mm, this is going to be entertaining. So they were, they were looking at him, and he was ignoring. Finally, one of them said, hey, man, what do you do? Uh, set his beer down, looked at both of them, and he simply said, well, I kill folk. Do you want a demonstration? And that was the end of the conversation, and they kind of slunk off their bar stools and made their way out of the bar. And as they walked by me, I remember saying, you made a good decision to leave. <laughs> so even though there was a lot of uh, hardship going on with the protesters, pardon my language, there was some vindication by seeing uh, Burroughs kind of give these two guys uh, a piece of his mind. And, so, and he was like the prototypical soldier, right? Like he was... He was the prototypical professional infantry soldier. About 6'3", big guy, um, probably 26, firmly uh, believed in, in reincarnation. You know, he had fought in the Gallic Wars with Caesar. He had fought, excuse me, I was petting uh, Patrick there. He fought in uh, World War II with Patton, and he, he was determined uh, to, to get killed in Vietnam anyway, I believe, so he could move on and, you know, sadly say he's, he's on the wall now. But he was the, you know, Sergeant Brock prototype. That was, that was Burroughs, yes. So he was kind of like a real-life Lieutenant Dan. It was his destiny to, to fall in combat. It was, and I don't think he would have had it any other way, honestly. So I guess to get back to your question, Dustin, so... Well, I, airport... I started. I got a new one for you. Let, let's go back oh, a little okay. bit. How did you How did you rotate from being in the field with the radio to being in the talk? Um, they they just need you know guys rotate out out of country and they 
they needed somebody to help coordinate, you know, the, the, the helicopter flights and talk to the guys and that. And being as I was already well versed in speaking on the radio and lead in, you know, in radio lingo, the phonetic alphabet and how to talk. Um, they offered it to me and I said, yeah, I would, was on the field almost a year, I guess, close to it. And I said, yeah, it's, it's probably time. So that's how I wound up in the, in the TAC or, you know, the operation center as they called it. What was it like for you though, having been in the field for a year to, to being in the talk and you're listening to these guys out in the field, would you just like want to, like, could you sense when maybe they should be doing something else and just want to be out there to help them or, you know, were you yeah. just over it? Well, I really, I wasn't monitoring uh, the blues uh, frequency. I was monitoring all the, all the, all the flights. Okay. You know, the, the lift birds and the, and, and the cobras and the loaches and that kind of thing. And I mean, I wasn't in charge by any means. I was just a guy in there who knew how to give directions and, and give, you know, read instructions and that. So I was kind of a, kind of a clerical position, I guess. But you, you heard too. it. I, I, I felt like I did. Yes, I felt like I did. And it was cool because it was the safest place in the base camp because it had like a million sandbags all around it, you know, so it was nice and cool in there and it was safe. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was cool. Do my eight hours a day and that'd be it. And, and actually, before we, we get back to coming home, we, we, we've learned from watching, you know, filmmakers, like you look at Randall Wallace and Braveheart when you have a, a down moment, you want to have a moment of levity. So I'm going to allow you to tell a story of how you and Craig Jorgensen decided you were going to try and disrupt the enemy food supply uh, with some grenades. <laughs> well, we came upon, you're talking about the fish pond, right? Yes, we, uh, we came across a fish pond uh, in the middle of the jungle and pretty quickly determined it was, a, a, it was full of fish. It was a food supply for the day, for the enemy and decided you know, we were going to destroy that. So Craig Jorgensen and Ed Beal, the two greatest point men I've ever known, and they like to blow stuff up, which we all did. They, so we were decided we were going to uh, rig up some C4 and some detonation cord and a blasting cap, and we were going to eliminate a food source for the enemy. Makes sense. So, yeah, it did. It, it, it all made sense. And so they set the charge. Uh, we set a perimeter up around them while they were doing it. Backed off what we thought was an acceptable distance. Uh, they blew it. And oh my God, I remember laying there and none of us was saying a word, but I remember hearing my voice go, son of a bitch. <laughs> and everybody, everybody was full of fish guts and they, so if everybody's probably seen the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where they blow up the uh, boxcar and they use too much dynamite and the money's flying all over, that's a perfect analogy for what we had that day. Or for, for our younger audience, the movie <coughs> Reno 911 when they blow up the whale. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, and we, all, we all stunk them. 
we all stunk to high heaven going back on the lift shift because we're all full of it and choppers were full of it and the crew chiefs hated us because they had to hose out their choppers so it was not their finest moment is all i can say but it's a, moment it that's, it's a moment that sticks with you though oh yes well, going, going back going back to the olfactory being a powerful memory sense uh yeah it, it certainly did stick with you <laughs> uh, i always love that story um but getting, getting back to, you know, you've landed, went through San Francisco. They gave you a third off to wear your greens, which uh, to quote Star Wars, it's a trap. Um, yes. But you did uh, then make it home. To, were you in St. Louis at, at that time? You, I was. Hey, could, could I impose upon you guys to take about a minute break? I'm starting to lose a little of my voice. I'm going to go grab a, uh, a cough drop slash throat lozenge. Yeah, no sure. problem. We'll just okay, take I'll a be, moment to thank our sponsors. Uh, I'll be, yeah, I'll be right back. I'll have Dustin tell jokes. Go, Dustin, be funny. Uh, I have the funny, I heard the funniest joke uh, I've ever heard, but I can't tell it on this podcast. There's no way. Well, uh, thanks, you tease. Hey, you're welcome. I'll tell it to you sometime, but you're not going to think it's funny. Um, wow, you're really setting us up. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> Cannot wait to hear it. Uh, you know, there's a pause button. We don't have to just sit here. Is there? Yeah, just go up to the recording piece. Uh, so is this where I do the Zoom face? Yeah, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> okay, uh, we are back, and I assume recording again. Dustin's great idea to pause, although... We'll I find out. You, yeah, I would say you missed his joke, but you didn't. <laughs> um, but welcome back, Jim. Uh, we were just talking about you getting home to St. Louis. And uh, you've gone from um, being in country to it's just you. Well, actually, how was your greeting with your family? Uh, the greeting in St. Louis was wonderful. Oh, by the way, there's one other thing I didn't tell you guys, if, if we have time, that I would like to tell you about yeah. my family. Um, when I found out I was going to be in the infantry and probably go to Vietnam, my dad and I made a pact that my mom would never know that. So as far as my mom was concerned, uh, I was a supply clerk and, uh, you know, was never saw a bit of combat, had it really easy over there. And not until I got out of, got out of the field, uh, and felt really secure, pretty secure, that I sent home my medals and citations and all that stuff. So um, we had my mom hoodwinked for a whole year that I, that I was not in combat. Uh, but when I got home, uh, the airport experience was great. My parents were there. My younger brother was there. Some of my friends were there. Uh, one of my friends had been in Vietnam about a year prior to me. He came out, and it was wonderful. And we went home, and my mom had a big sign in the window, Welcome Home Blue. We all went downstairs, and my dad sat at my dad's bar and had a couple beers and visited. And it was, it was like a dream, you know. It, it wasn't real, but it was great at the same time. 
And I remember finally running out of gas because I guess I'd been up for well over 24 hours and adrenaline wearing off and went up and went to bed. And even though it was the middle of August, I was freezing. Uh, so my, my mom turned the furnace on for it for me because I was used to different climate. Uh, but it was, it was very pleasant. Everybody was, was wonderful uh, in my immediate family and all my friends. It was great. All right. And you've talked about the, the olfactory sense. Um, but you've mentioned, you were one of the first ones to mention, um, you, know, you, you, you extended 50 days, so your first 4th of July home wasn't until almost a year later. But um, the fire, you, you've specifically mentioned that the fireworks were uh, a tough time for you. Could you walk the audience through that? Yeah, well, I, uh, I went and hid. In, in the basement because that was the quietest place. And it had been, you know, I'd been home 10, 11 months at that time, but it, it didn't seem to make any difference to my, to my brain. It was like, Jesus, get me out of here, you know? So it, was, it wasn't good, it wasn't good. And to this day, and I always loved fireworks, you know, loved the colors and the noise and all that, but that's all, that's all changed to this day. And, and again, you know, like with Dwayne last week where he walked, you know, it's, it's easy to say, you know, flashbacks or it's, you know, not, I'm not saying easy, that, that may not be the right word, but it's not as in depth for, and we, we do want people to understand this. Like, is it just the sound for you with fireworks or does it trigger memories or you know to walk the audience through because i think it is important to, to bridge the gulf and help them understand this yeah well it is the sound i guess primarily dave but uh the bright flashes uh, are also disturbing you know because you see uh you know artillery going off mortar rounds going off especially at night we get we'd get mortared or get rocket attacks at night uh when we were in the base camp and not only was it loud, but uh, the visual effect was was pretty scary as well because you knew what went along with it, you know. So, so I guess mostly this, mostly the sound, but boy, the the bright flashes and explosions, yeah, it's it's very disconcerting. So, I mean, I know you go to a lot of uh, uh, St. Louis Cardinals games. I'm assuming. You, you never turned down a chance to tell us uh, how, how well they've done in the playoffs. <laughs> uh, well, the, the rec I stand on their record. <laughs> well, I mean, I've got the Mariners here, so whatever, we're in rebuilt number 42, so. <laughs> yes, right. Um, but, I mean, uh, sporting events, everything they do, you know, you don't really realize, you know, you always think of the 4th of July, but. God, there's fireworks all over sporting events and everything else, huh? Yeah, well, when, when you know it's coming, it's much more manageable. You know, you're, you're mentally prepared for it and you say, okay, you're going to do this. Okay, go ahead and do it. Um, but if you hear something go off that you're not mentally prepared for, that's when it kind of freaks you out. Yeah, that's, I, I can... It's understandable. 
Um, but actually, we'll, we'll backtrack uh, because, like you said, it was 10 or 11 months before that first 4th of July. After your initial wonderful greeting from your family, um, did you go back to work right away? Did the thoughts and, and emotions start? Like, what was that, let's say, one, two, three months after returning home like for you? Yeah, well, I, I goofed around for about 30 days. I think, and then then I went to work, and just uh, you know, not a big time job of any of any kind. Worked in a department store, and it, you know, after listening to Doc and listening to Dwayne, I I tried to think back more. You guys have made me think a lot, by the way. So thank you for that. Trying to think how it was, and initially. I think it was so different just being there. It was still like I was walking around in a in a story or a, or a dream or something. Uh, just you know, did a lot of partying. Tried not to think about it very much at all. And but most most other people outside the people that I that I really knew and were really friends with, uh, I found out pretty quickly that nobody gave a dang about Vietnam or anybody being in Vietnam, didn't really care to talk about Vietnam. So you just put it away. I, I was talking to Kathy today and I remember uh, a few months after I was home and I was at a party, you know, the parties when you're in your early twenties with all the kids and stuff. And this girl came up to me that I worked with and she said, boy, I really would like to talk to you. And I said, okay. She said, you were in Vietnam, right? And I said, yes, I was. She said, wow, that's really cool that you get to like kill people and stuff. And I, and I, I looked at her and I said, what is wrong with you? So I just got the heck out of there. And so people either thought it was um, some kind of a, uh, exciting, exciting vacation, or they just didn't want to talk about it at all. So I didn't talk about it at all either. You know, um, I'd have a bad night every once in a while and didn't really have a, a girlfriend at the time. Had a couple of really good friends uh, that would listen to me. Uh, I couldn't talk to my mom or dad about it because I just, just couldn't go there, you know. So I just kind of put it away as best I could. Yeah, I mean, well, you didn't have a girlfriend, but apparently, you know, it's because you turned down the girl who wanted to talk about, like, killing. This is a weird way of flirting, I guess. Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know what she wanted, actually, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I will tell you that, that I, I put it away most of the time. I will tell you that every December 5th, I did my best to get as absolutely intoxicated as I possibly could. And I carried that on for, for a whole lot of years. And I had one friend who stuck with me through that every year. Well, Other than that. That's actually a lead into to what I was trying to formulate earlier. Um, and we don't have to go too far into this if you don't want, but I think it's important with yesterday being Memorial Day and honoring, I mean, there's 
a specific reason why December 5th is, is hard for you. It's not just a random date on the calendar you chose to, to do that, correct? Uh, that's correct, yes. Do you want me to get into it a little bit? Do you, or... do you want to talk about that? Or we, don't, we don't have oh, to. I'm, 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 I'm perfectly okay with it. It's, it's all a matter of record now, right. you know. Um, but yeah, to, to, to keep it fairly simple, we, got, we, we walked into a bunker complex uh, that day, got into a fight. This was before either Craig or Ed were with us. Gary Qualley was our platoon leader. I was still uh, carrying the radio for my squad at that point. And we walked into this bunker complex. It was pretty late in the afternoon. It was a cloudy day. And it was one of those times where you could feel it just didn't feel right. And uh, we kept moving in at the Highbird's suggestion and who else was telling them, I don't know. Um, but we kind of knew we were in a bad place for sure. And I was off to one side with my squad and I heard all the, all the shooting go off. And my friend, Tim McCrite, my best friend, um, he was walking point that day. Dwayne was up very up near the front. Gary Qualley was our platoon leader. He was up near the front at that time. And Paul McCord was on the radio right behind them and heard, heard, heard the shooting start, heard somebody scream, turned out it was Tim uh, later on. And this guy had just popped out of a, a bunker in the ground and just opened up with his AK. And he shot Tim, he shot Joey Sanchez, and he shot Gary Qualley. He got all three of them. And then I'm pretty sure probably Dwayne uh, got him. And so it, it, it was a bad day and we needed to get all three of them out of there, but it was too small of an area for a medevac to land. We tried to enlarge the, uh, this little bomb crater to make it big enough, chop and it didn't work. So we finally medevaced all three of them out of there. And it was, it was a bad day. It was, there was many acts of heroism happened that day. Uh, both on the ground and in the air, uh, the Lowbird pilot flew his Lowbird between the medevac, I think that was Rickabaugh, between the medevac and the enemy fire to take the fire himself while we were getting these guys out. We had to put them all on jungle penetrators uh, to get them out. It was a bad day, and Tim wound up living like a week and then he died from his internal injuries. And it, it's the day that not only did that happen, and uh, you know, I don't mind sharing this, uh, I wound up doing some things that day that I am not proud of, but in the heat of the moment, I did them. And I guess in the same situation, I'd probably do it again. I don't know, uh, but that has been the one thing more than anything else, I think has haunted me all these years because I have, uh, I don't have a lot of flashbacks about being in Vietnam, but I have a recurring dream 
that happens back here in the states and i don't i don't want to share everything because it's it's pretty personal but i'm sure it has to do with what i did that day so every december 5th i'd just get out of my mind and it was half a memorial to timmy and gary and joey and i guess the other half was trying to assuage the guilt that I felt for what I did that day. So there you have it, boys. Well, and, and, you know, we've never, we've never talked about what it is, but, you know, when we talked to Dr. Clymer, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take a stab here and, you know, he said rage, rage is a very um, common side effect of combat uh, for soldiers, because you know, Dwayne has told us about that day, and after Tim was shot, he just had so much rage in him, he had to be told to let up on the trigger, um, because he was just so angry. So, I hear a dog. <laughs> um, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's a very natural human thing for you. We, we got a, a, a doodle just off camera yeah we, we we just had a doodle sighting so well you know i i don't know if if i agree with all of that it's to me it, it's it's not natural at all but i guess given the given the environment uh it was natural for the for the time i guess so maybe you're right but well the war is sure. an unnatural thing yeah so anyway um that's my story on that on that day well and thank you for sharing that i mean it is the subjects that we cover aren't easy um you know and just thinking about between our first and second interview with you um i know it's not easy you know we've talked to the other everyone else about it you know look at us mr mohawk there and 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 me with my star wars behind me you know you trust yeah. us to tell your story um and we and you know i know it's not an easy thing but i think it is helpful for a lot of people yeah it is because i i gave up trying to kill myself on december 5th a, few, a while back so i guess that's a good thing right yeah i i think that's an undersell to say that's a good thing <laughs> yeah Except last year was the fiftieth fiftieth anniversary of it, so I did I did get off the rails a little bit that day. But you're back on them, so. Yeah, I'm back on them, and um, you know I I kept in in contact with Tim's mom off and on over the years. Uh, found his sister a few years ago, and uh, you know established contact with her, so we had a kind of a link. Uh, to him through Edie, who was his mom, and Drina, who was his sister. So that helped. And Gary, Gary has met um, Timmy's sister as well. We went up and visited them. And so is Dwayne. We all three went up to where, uh, Alito, Illinois, where they live, visited Drina, and we all went out to visit uh, Timmy's grave as well. Met, met the whole family, uh, their, her kids and grandkids and everything. So it was, it was good. And, and Dustin, I'll give you a chance to to shift topics if you want. I'll step back. I was gonna I was gonna ask about um, about the 
gas shortage in 73 and, and what that was like as somebody who'd gone out and served and um you know i, I don't want to i don't want to degenerate your literacy uh but you seem like you <laughs> that's quite all right <laughs> you seem like you had a pretty good head on your shoulders for politics so it seemed like you were paying attention at the time what was what was that experience like the energy crisis yeah that's that's what it was referred to as uh, you know honestly dustin i wasn't really going anywhere specific at that time um i was unmarried i was i gotta go get, Le get levi out of here excuse me come on buddy you know the rules of the internet state. You can't talk about a dog and not show the dog. There we go. Did you get him? Yeah. yeah. He was a okay. puppy when we met him. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's 65 pounds now. Wow. So, so, so Dustin, uh, it didn't really affect me all that much personally because I wasn't really going anywhere that uh, I needed a lot of gas. I was going to school part-time on the GI Bill had a part-time job um, doing nothing special and just doing a lot of partying at that point, you know. Had my little apartment and listened to a lot of music and drank a lot of beer and, you know, you know the story. So, but it, it, was, it was a pretty weird time to answer your question. Uh, you know, people would get in line, forget, like if their tank got down to three quarters full, they think they had to go top it off again. And there was a lot of arguments in the lines at the gas stations. And, uh, you know, I, in my opinion, it was all contrived to uh, manipulate the economy. I what? always will believe that. Does that ever happen? Who would do such a thing? What? The government putting uh, their hand into the economy? That would never happen. Let's let's think. Maybe maybe oil companies. No, not them. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. Sorry to. Definitely not. Um, less than ten dollars a barrel right now. Yeah, but it was yeah, but it was so bad that year, and it even affected uh, electricity because people weren't putting up Christmas lights that year because of the quote energy crisis, and that really bummed me out more than anything else. I think. Cause I love Christmas lights. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, I can't give you a, a better, a better no, more that's, graphic that's, uh, that's great. story, but that's, that's what I wanted to know. And Dustin's also showing off why we don't let him ask as many questions. <laughs> um, and actually, you know, we first met you, Oh, four years ago, right, Dustin? 2016? Yeah. And we met you in Vegas, and then we visited you in St. Louis. Uh, and like uh -huh. I said before, you sat down and trusted these two guys with your to tell your life story to a bunch of strangers. Uh, and then we followed up a year later, and we talked about what that experience was like. Uh, you know, so we'll, we'll ask again, even though we asked it on camera, for, for our audience, what was it like for you to sit down that first time with us and just be able to tell your story? Um, was, I mean, uh, both on the day, but then the, 
you know, the, the cascading effect afterwards. From the first interview? From the first interview. From the first interview. Well, it felt strange initially, but you guys had presented yourselves so well, in my opinion, and I feel I'm a fairly good judge of people and character and your, uh, your sincerity and your honesty seemed pretty apparent to me. So I was okay with it. It felt awkward at first, but you guys made it really pretty easy. And I also had this sense when you came to me and, and you know, Craig had let me know that I was gonna hear from you and some of this other guys, I just had this, this sense that maybe this, maybe it's time, you know, you're 69 years old, I believe, maybe it's time you started getting your head out of your rear and start talking about this. And you guys provided the perfect avenue for that. So if, when we finished the interview, uh, I felt a huge sense of relief. And the cascading effect, uh, what, what you guys did, in addition to getting us to open up, and I'm forever grateful, is you reestablished the connection and the bond among all of us guys. And that made it that much easier to, to talk about it because we had each other then. But maybe we would see each other but once a year, if that, before that. So that it, it helped on, on more than one level for me. What, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this without leading you in any way, you know, objective leading, leading the witness. Um, well, actually I'll say it this way. Like this was, we did not expect to see what we saw when we first sat down and started conducting these interviews. Like I've said before, this was not our original intent with this movie was to talk about the power of talking. Uh, it's just something that we saw over time. Did you think, and, and I, I guess I'm asking this from the perspective of a veteran who may be listening, who has been wondering if they should talk. Did you think it was gonna be as relieving as, as it ended up being? Like, was, you know, what was your impression of that? Initially, I, I did have some doubts about going through this process. And one of the reasons I did, uh, Dave and Dustin, uh, I know some of the guys are in PTSD class now. I, I was attending or talking to a, a, a therapist, a lady a few years ago down at the VA and, you know, confiding in her. And she told me, well, you definitely have some issues and I have a program that I could get you into and it might help you, but it might make it worse. And I wasn't willing to risk that at the time. So I just kind of cut her off and hadn't talked much since. So I wasn't sure where this was going to go, but again, the, the, what my opinion of you two guys uh, right from the get go and the fact that uh, Dwayne and Ed and Doc and Jack and Poncho were all in it as well 
There's, you know, like their strength in numbers, I guess. So that kind of um, made me feel like it would be okay. And it was. It most certainly is. Thanks for trusting us, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And we, we good fooled thing, you. Good thing I didn't judge you by your looks, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I think he's talking to you. Yes, though. you did. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so actually, you know, we asked this question in our second interview, and I'll ask it today for the podcast. If a veteran is watching this or listening to it once we're on an RSS feed on iTunes or something, um, watching or listening, and they're thinking about talking or they're maybe even apprehensive or skeptical of, of talking, what would you, as a fellow veteran, tell them? I would tell them, number one, that if they don't find someone to talk to about it, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. It's going to continue to haunt you. It's going to continue to fester. So don't expect it to go away on its own. It's not going to go away. So for God's sake, talk to somebody. Uh, there's a lot of people out there today that are a lot more sympathetic to our stories and to stories of the younger veterans. Um, there's plenty of help available through the VA. If you have, uh, if you're fortunate enough to have a partner like I have, who you guys have met and has been a godsend for me, talk to them, talk to your friends, call me for God's sake, talk to somebody. I have struck up a friendship with a, with a, a young man, he's about your guy's age, so he's young. And he uh, was in the Marine Corps and he was in Afghanistan more than once. And he went through the same type of thing that we did, different scenario, you know, same stuff, different day. And uh, we exchanged text again yesterday. Uh, and he's got a lot of friends who were struggling. He had enough, he's had more than one friend commit suicide uh, over all this. And you know, I keep telling him, Chris, as a matter of fact, if you guys wind up making a trip here, I think you'd enjoy talking to Chris. He's a, he's a well-heeled guy and a smart guy, went through a lot. So um, if you're out there, and you're battling this, and you probably are, there's a heck of a lot of people who care about you, who care about how you feel, and would be happy to sit down and just listen and let you say anything you want to say to get it off your chest. And if you want anything back from us, we're here to give it to you. But it's not going to get better on its own. It just doesn't. So is it ever going to be perfect? No. Is it ever going to totally go away? No. I found that out yesterday. It was, a, it was a tough day. But there's all kinds of people out there that want to hear your story. And please get it out. Please. And yeah, I talked, I, I think I mentioned it in the first podcast that I thought I was a good listener before until I, I started doing these interviews and I wasn't allowed to talk <laughs> while well, you guys were talking and it taught me a lot more about listening 
Um, and I'm going to flip that question then, you know, let's say I'm, you know, a son or a daughter or, or a wife or a husband of a veteran, and I want to talk to the veteran in my life as someone on the other side of that, what advice would then would you give that person on how they could initiate or how they could be a good partner or listener in that conversation? Well, it, it might be hard for them to initiate the conversation because I kind of feel like it probably has to come from, from the veteran, Dave, but you can certainly suggest and let it be known that boy, I know, I know this has to be bothering you. You never talk about it. You're a strong person, but I just want you to know that I'm here for you. And I would like to hear your story because you did something for me and for our country and for everybody uh, that you deserve a lot of credit for. And I would love to hear your story and if you want to, I'll just sit down here and shut up and listen to anything you have to say. So I think you can suggest it and let them know that you care. That's probably the most important thing, that you do care about what they went through and you're appreciative. I think that's important that you're appreciative of what they did. Well, we appreciate you, Jim. A, for what you did. B, for trusting us. See, continuing to trust us after you met us. <laughs> yeah, that was the that was a little more difficult, but uh, no. Yeah, you, but met us, you, you met us in Vegas and thought, "What did I get myself into?" <laughs> oh, these guys seem reasonable. I'll invite them into my home. <laughs> yeah, under supervision. Just strap that, just strap that bass on, Dustin, and we'll jam, buddy. Heck yeah, man! Anytime. Did you listen to that yet? Pardon me. Did you listen to that band yet? We listened to a couple of their songs and I thought, man, Dustin must be nuts. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't give it, I didn't give it uh, a full measure. I guess I should, I should do uh, that. That's, that's up to you, man. I'm just trying to share music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I understand. I, I think, uh, you know, you decided you liked me when I shared my playlist I had from my father and it was all the you, Rolling you, Stones. You, you, uh, you you went up your my respect for you went up several notches when I found out what kind of music you listen to. You bet. <laughs> the classics are the best. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. to answer your earlier question, we would love to come back to St. Louis this summer, meet your friend. Um, you know, hopefully, I I have high hopes. You know, when you look at the lockdowns, even what it was two weeks ago, I have high hopes we'll be able to leave here in August and, and come visit you guys if you'll have us. Yeah, we'll, we certainly would like to figure something out if it's feasible, for sure. Perfect. Dustin, I hand it over to you if you have anything. Uh, my, my question is more about, um, I, I guess my last question, Jim, would be uh, how, how has How has just thinking about your past experiences affected your current day-to-day -day life? Like uh, you said that um, we had been causing you some introspection, and I, I wonder if I wonder if that's been helpful. Uh, I certainly hope it has, but 
have you found that to be harrowing or, or, or useful? Well, I would say both, but much more so on the positive side. You know, once in a while, when, when you think about it, uh, I think I, did you guys get the text I sent you yesterday with the song of the day? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I text on the, the, yeah, uh, especially the video that goes with it, but that doesn't, and not to get off your track, um, the pain or the, it never goes away totally. But I think you have helped me to put it all more in perspective and to be very grateful for what we really do have myself and all these guys and to keep focusing um, on the positive part of it and to try to help out uh, where we can with these younger guys. Before the lockdown, I had been volunteering over at Jefferson Barracks, uh, helping the veterans who need not really physical therapy, but guys that need to go through the Nautilus machines for part of their therapy or prescribed by their doctors or whatever. I've been putting guys uh, through their paces over there because, you know, I'm a pretty big oh, exercise guy, as you know. And that was really a lot of fun doing that. And it felt pretty useful doing it and swapping stories. Some of them were younger, some of them were older, but it, it helps put things in perspective, Dustin. And I think it makes you grateful for what we do have. Sometimes you tend to focus on um, what, how come I wound up over there and how come I went through all this shit. But I think it makes you realize, hey, it did happen, right? Can't change that. Uh, be grateful for what you got uh, and go out and spread the good word and try to do something every day to help somebody else feel a little bit better. That's kind of what I'm, what I'm trying to do. That puts it up, uh, perfectly in perspective. You're such a great American, man. I love hanging out with you. <laughs> mm, I don't know about that. I do, man. You do all the right things. I do because your wife makes excellent butter cake. Oh, uh, you know, you won't believe it, but uh, I guess it's well over I, I, almost two years ago. You know, I went on a plant-based diet. Yeah. And, and uh, boy, she has found some some recipes that are unbelievable. She made a vegan chocolate cream pie. Wow. Oh, oh, baby. <laughs> so maybe if you're really nice to her. Uh, if you guys make it over here, she'll she'll share some of that. We're always nice. Just ask my daughters. Oh wait, no, I've already been yep. told like three times this week. I'm ruining my daughter's life. Someone has to. Well, teenagers. Yeah. Well, in ten years though, she'll be she'll be appreciative, or maybe less. God, I hope so. <laughs> she will. Um, that's you know that's that's what we've got. I'm gonna give you the the last word if you want it. Mr. Brown? Well, I suppose, again, we are grateful. I think I speak for most of the guys, all of the guys. We are grateful for what you are doing. You're putting a great message out there, not just for us, not just for Apache Troop, but for veterans everywhere. And I only hope that the people who are exposed to all of this 
that are suffering, please take it to heart and please go just sit down and talk to somebody, whether it's your bartender or your barber or your better half or whomever it is, just go talk to somebody and please be aware that you are not alone. There's a whole bunch of us out here and there's a whole bunch of us that are willing to listen to you and help you. But you have to be the one to supply the impetus to get the ball rolling. It's got to be up to you. You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.